1: And welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. I'm Angie, and today I'll be interviewing a very special guest talking about one of the most unique and mysterious animals in the world. I'll be interviewing Dr. Barney Long, which is the director from the Global Wildlife Conservation, where he acts as the Species Conservation Director. And this is a nonprofit organization out of Austin, Texas. And I'm having him on the podcast today as my guest expert expert. In the saola. Now, most of you are probably scratching your heads if you haven't listened to our species podcast on the saola. The saola is a unique mammal, hoofed and horned, my favorite, that's why I'm excited. Everybody knows that I love my hoof stock, uh, out of Asia, and they're in a conservation crisis and a lot and a lot of people don't know about them. So he's going to be here spreading the word today and teaching us all about the Saola and the great work that the Global Wildlife Conservation is doing that he's also doing for Saola conservation. So, good morning, Dr. Long. How are you? Good
0: morning. Uh, I'm great, thank you, and it's fantastic to be here. Thanks for inviting me on.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Like I said, I've been wanting to have this interview so long and I uh not only did I get an interview with a sale expert, but I got an interview with a guy that's been working with them for what close to twenty years almost?
0: Yep, nearly twenty years, yes.
1: Wow. Wow. Well if you don't mind, can you give our listeners a little background um about yourself and how you got to where you're at today as the director of global wildlife conservation, species conservation?
0: Sure i 'd be happy to um, well, as far as I can remember, I always wanted to work in the rainforest i 've got no idea where that dream came from. Uh, I come from inner city leeds in in the u k um, and had absolutely zero exposure to rainforests or animals growing up. Um, but it was a passion of mine since uh, I was young, um, and I remember actually sitting in the the library of my school when I was about uh, 15 or 16, when the news of the discovery of the saola broke. Um, and I was reading, uh, BBC wildlife magazine, which is the big kind of wildlife magazine in the UK. And I remember leaning over to my best friend and saying, Hey, this is amazing. I, I want to work on this species.
1: Wow.
0: Um, and it was about four or five years later, um, where I, uh, applied for a job, uh, in Pumat national park in Northern Vietnam, uh, to establish a conservation program for the hour, And I was completely unqualified. Um, <laughs> uh, I was supposed to have five years experience and a master's degree and all of these kinds of things. Um, but I was so keen that I applied anyway. And um, apparently everyone who'd worked in the park before had got really sick with dengue. So no one was applying for the job. Um, and so they gave it to me. <laughs> so, in a very lucky turn of events, um, I got to start working on the salad. That's
1: amazing. No one else could hack it. So you were... Yeah.
0: So I did get dengue and I did get sick for a couple of months, but it was worth it. Wow.
1: <laughs> that is true dedication.
0: Um, so yeah. So I spent about eight or nine years uh, in Vietnam, uh, not just working on the salad. I was working on primates and um, landscape scale conservation uh, and also did some work in Cambodia and Indonesia. Uh and then moved to the US um, and I've been here for over ten years now. Uh I moved over here for WWF and I ran their their species program in the US mm-hmm. um, and moved over to Global Wildlife Conservation about two and a half years ago uh to head up their species program. Uh so I oversee a, a fantastic program uh working to prevent the extinction and promote the recovery of, of critically endangered species across wow. the world. Wow.
1: So you would say that you've been a hoofstock dork your whole life like myself
0: well it's interesting actually my, my main interest is in is small carnivores and primates oh, but most no! of my work seems to be hoofstock so i've become a hoofstock okay, good. So, it's like again. a learn.
1: it's like <laughs> a learned passion
0: yes absolutely no we're we're, we're working on the saula the tamarau we're trying to get work going on on the endangered wild pigs and other wild cattle uh, i do a lot on the indonesian rhinos Sumatran and javan so um yes, uh, a lot of a lot of ungulates, which I, I never expected to be working on, really. But uh, that's the way it goes. And I love them now.
1: They're fun, aren't they?
0: Absolutely. Um, and we you know, one of my my passions is working on species we know so little about and trying to learn about them. And and kind of that detective work of figuring out what it takes to conserve a species, um, which is a mixture of ecology um, politics, uh, culture, all of these kind of things. Uh, so putting all of those pieces together when we know so little, um, is what really excites me. Uh, and to come up with workable conservation solutions, um, as the outcome of that kind of detective work is, is fantastic fun.
1: Well, and I love how you describe it as detective work. I, in the podcast, a lot of times I always describe it for my travels abroad as very complex issues because like you had mentioned, there's political issues, there's cultural, uh, things going on plus a lot that we may not even know about the animal as far as their behavior, their ecology, the habitat range that they need. And so yeah, I I, I love your approach that's more of a detective work than complex because complex makes it sound a little bit scary, which it is. Uh, it's definitely a lot, a lot to bite off, uh, or a lot to chew. That's for sure. But I mean, I'm just so glad that there's people out there like yourself that are willing to do this hard work and the organization of global wildlife conservation and it, what is the overall mission
0: uh the mission of global wildlife conservation is is to save the diversity of life on earth um but we we do that by focusing on wildlands which are the most important critically uh, important sites on the planet um through wildlife uh which is saving the most endangered species um and a, a guardians program which is building up the the people uh, that are going to be helping wildlife and wild lands. Um, so yeah, we have a, a very clear um, mission and, and set of goals that that we're we're working towards, trying to save the diversity of life on Earth.
1: And the global con- global wildlife conservation, or the GWC, will probably refer to it throughout the interview. They obviously are working on several projects with the seola, but they uh, they have a host of other species projects in in many different countries that they work on. Is that correct?
0: Absolutely yes. We we support um groups around the world uh working on things ranging from wild cattle to small mammals to cave invertebrates. Um so yes, we uh, if a species is is critically endangered and in need of a champion, um we're willing to talk about helping to be that champion.
1: Wonderful. Oh, all right. This is amazing. Now, since we'll be talking about the saola, is that how you say it or is it just my American accent that's my Midwestern it's the accent. Sao la. Sao la.
0: Yes, it's actually two <laughs> words: uh, oh. Sao and La, um, sao in, and in la. the local dialect in in uh, Vietnam and Laos. So yeah, Sao okay. la. Sao
1: la. Okay. See, I love it. Learning. This is amazing. Can you briefly describe for our listeners so they can get excited and become a Hoofstock dork like me? Uh, uh, what it looks like, its size, its color, where it lives, what it eats—just some some general. Uh, general things about
0: it sure so um it's a primitive bovidae which means it's related to cows and goats um we don't exactly know what it's most closely related to um, but it looks more like an antelope or the the duiker of of africa um it's just under a meter tall uh, and about one and a half meters long uh it's uh a chocolate brown um and has long tapering straight horns um almost parallel uh with just a very slight curve to them and then it has these fantastic white markings on its face uh around its nose and and uh, eyes um on its neck uh it has a a lovely kind of white crescent on its uh behind and has little white socks as well um so it's an extremely beautiful and elegant uh looking animal um, and if you can imagine this beautiful dark chocolate brown white uh, animal uh in the dense multicolored green um rainforest it's it's a it's a beautiful sight if if i was to ever see it
1: <laughs> we'll get to that in a few questions uh and now where does it live
0: Sure, so it's, it's endemic to the Annamite Mountains, which means it's only found, uh, in one mountain range, uh, which forms the border between Vietnam and Laos. Um, and it actually is only found in the north and central part of that. Uh, so it spans about a thousand kilometers, uh, from north to south. Um, mm-hmm. but probably only 40 to 50 kilometers east to west. So it's a very, very restricted range and actually within that it's only found in certain kind of microhabitats mm-hmm. um so areas that are extremely wet okay. um where they get monsoons coming from different directions during the year mm-hmm. so um we call it everwet forest where it's basically always getting getting rain whichever season it is so it's not even found continuously across those mountain ranges it's it's historically founded and found in patches uh through that that thousand kilometers
1: wow and now is this a stock animal is it more of a grazer so eating grass like we think of horses or more of a browser which is like a giraffe uh, or black rhino where they are eating reaching up and eating leaves and the trees
0: um we don't really know. I mean, it, it's more than likely a browser. You don't really get grass in, in rainforests. Um, ah, okay. It's going to be walking along uh, forested hillsides, uh, plucking leaves as it goes. Um, okay. But we really don't know. There's been no ecological studies on the animal. So we, we really don't know what it eats, but it, it will be a browser.
1: Mm-hmm. And that kind of leads into my next question. If you could give the listeners a brief background on the history of the saula? Sela? I'll get it darn it. <laughs> the Saula. Saula. Um, uh, sure. Mm-hmm, like when they were first uh recorded and their history with the locals, I just it's just an amazing story in my opinion.
0: Yeah, so we we've actually found um some archaeological facts which probably do have drawings of Saula on them. Uh I don't know the exact date of them, but hundreds of years um old. Um, But to Western science, it was only discovered in 1992.
1: Right, when you read the article, it was a 15-year-old, right?
0: Absolutely, yes. So throughout the French colonial period, there was lots of discoveries in Vietnam and Laos, but they really didn't get up into the the highlands. Um, And then obviously there's been many decades of civil unrest in the area, which, which prevented exploration by um Vietnamese and Lao scientists or um Western scientists so it was only really after the region kind of opened up that exploration started to go in um and in 1992 a, a joint expedition of, of WWF and FIPI which is the uh, uh Vietnamese Government Research Institute um went into an area uh called Vu uh in north central Vietnam and found a pair of horns oh, in wow. a village um and instantly knew it was mm-hmm. something new. Um and when it was published it caused quite a stir around the world that such a large, beautiful, charismatic species was completely unknown to the the Western sure. world, or even the scientific world, uh, until nineteen ninety-two. But that actually sparked a whole array of of large mammal and bird and every other type of animal you can think of. Um that there's been uh, another ungulate discovered in the region, uh, in 1997, the large antlered muntjac, uh, was wow. found in the same area. Um, and that is also critically endangered and, and not too far behind Sala in, in, uh, terms of closeness to extinction. Um, then there was the Animite striped rabbit. Um, there was something called the canu, which is, uh, 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 an ancient form of whether well, we thought that was a new species when it was described, but then we actually found it in historical records. So it's a, a living fossil. Uh, it's a small rodent um uh, okay. that lives in the limestone areas uh, of Lao and Vietnam. So this area has really opened up a, a treasure trove of new discoveries and it really highlights um what a a vehicle for evolution the Anamite Mountains are. They've they've probably stayed wet throughout Mm -hmm. um the recent history uh warm and wet so they've acted as a a center of evolution within southeast asia so there's all of these endemic species that have uh evolved out of there and radiated out of there as well so it really is a special mountain range with with incredible uh, fauna and flora then
1: do researchers know a lot about sail sailor behavior or reproductive biology or anything the locals can help you with or not really
0: no I mean we we really do know so little about it no scientist has ever seen one in the wild um there's been a few in captivity in the late uh, 90s early 2000s well no late 1990s um but they were all held in not by professional keepers uh with vets sure. around so none of them particularly lasted mm-hmm. very long um so we've got mm-hmm. very little idea um you know we've got indications that they are solitary but maybe during breeding seasons one or two of them uh or three of them might get together there's reports from local that they migrate um up and down the mountains in the seasons but that's we have no idea if that's true or not um we do know they give one calf um it Uh, We don't know how regularly, presumably one calf a year, Um, but we really have no idea. Everything we're doing is from uh, postmortems of of dead animals or inference from from what we know from the the internal biology of the species um, or from what locals are telling us. We we really have very little idea. Um, They have a a huge preorbital flap uh, Mm -hmm. with a musty substance underneath it on the cheek. Um, yeah. so it's highly likely that they mark, um, the locals say they twist, uh, they break saplings with their horns and then mark, um, those broken saplings. But we don't know if that's territorial or, or what that or is. Reproductive. About. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. So yeah, so we've got lots of guesses and ideas, but you know, until one is actually studied, we know so little about
1: this animal. Wow. And now, With that being said, do you know what the estimated population of it is? Or obviously it's critically endangered, but is there a guess? Uh,
0: No. Uh, I mean, we've thrown numbers out before when pushed, but really we have no idea how many there are. Um, What we do know is is across their range, there's only a handful of sites where they remain. So they're Um, fragmented. Yes. And within those sites, um, the the experts believe none of those sites have more than 20 animals in. And again, that's a guess, um, but it's probably pretty close to accurate. So um, even if there's five or six sites with 20 animals in, which I don't believe there's that many, but if there is, um, none of those individual sites probably has a viable population over the long term. Um, there's so few of them. Uh, we don't know if they're meeting each other and breeding. Um, so we've probably got alley effects going on, which means, um, inbreeding combined with just not having enough mating opportunities. So it's, it's highly likely that every existing or remaining subpopulation is in an extinction vortex, um, and has no chance to recover. Um, You layer on top of that the the hunting pressure in each of these sites, um, where even if these populations were breeding, they're probably being killed at a faster rate than they're breeding. Um, So every single population, even though we don't know how many there are, we can be 99.999% certain that every single subpopulation is going to go extinct very, very soon.
1: Well, yes. And can you elaborate on the hunting pressures? Are locals... Or indigenous people poaching them for their meat, or is it perhaps they're looking for other animals, and then the sola is just getting caught up in their traps? Or what is the exact pressure?
0: Sure. So the Animite Mountains is is an amazing uh, hotbed of cultural diversity as well. So so there's um, there's tens of different indigenous groups okay, uh, wow. across the Animites, all of which have their own cultural hunting practices mm-hmm. and, and traditional uh, hunting needs. Um, I would say though, however, about 20 years ago to 10 years ago, the need for those groups to hunt to the sustain themselves has all but disappeared. Okay. Um, those groups are still often dependent on forest resources in times of crises. Mm-hmm. Um, so if there's a crop failure for some reason or whatever, then they're still dependent on natural resources and need access to natural resources um but they don't really need to hunt for protein okay. um so that has been you know the governments and and those groups have done a fantastic job of of getting out of that absolute extreme dependence on on hunting um however about 20 years ago um as that traditional hunting was decreasing new technologies came in that brought in snares um so snares uh were not used historically they were they were using pitfall traps and bamboo spike spear traps and things like this with the with snares coming in and snares are made of bicycle brake okay. cable um which is very very cheap and you can buy mm-hmm. in bulk um so what's happened is although the traditional communities are not necessarily hunting so much and they do still hunt partly for traditional reasons and cultural traditions etc um, but that's generally very targeted with spears or crossbows mm-hmm. or something like that. Cause it's part of ceremony so they can decide Correct. which species to hunt. Um, the big threat now is lowlanders who are coming in and setting snares. Um, and they're doing that to supply primarily the oh, restaurant trade. Mm, um, yeah. And in, in that part of the world, eating wildlife meat is seen as a status symbol so if you are entertaining uh, a superior at work your business colleagues a government partner whatever it's it's culturally um significant to to go out to eat wildlife rather than at a, any other type of restaurant so there's a there's a massive demand for wildlife meat which is growing as as vietnam and laos develop there's a growing middle class there's growing wealth there's increased demand for that kind of thing um, so what you're seeing now and have been for like the last 10, 15, 20 years is industrial scale snaring in these areas. Um, and by industrial scale, I mean, industrial scale, you will find a ridge yeah, path in a I forest. Yeah, that's, I was going to
1: say, those are some heavy, that's some heavy adjectives.
0: Yes. And, and I'm, I'm, Ugh. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. If you find a ridge path, there will be a brush fence made from sticks and branches all the way up the ridge path. And every five meters, there'll be a hole with a snare on it. Oh my god! So gosh. any single animal, whether it's a ferret, badger, the size of a rat, or a samba deer, um, the, you know, which is larger than a white-tailed here, white-tailed deer here in the US, any animal wanting to cross that ridge has to find a break in that that uh, brush fence and will be snared. So you're seeing total deformation of these mountains, wow. um, complete empty forest syndrome when you're seeing. Samba deer um, and lots of the civets, uh, even porcupines, being completely wiped out of these forests. Um, you're getting to a point where if you're walking through eastern U.S. forest, um, you would not be seeing white-tailed deer. You would not be seeing possums right, like really Common, possums and common species that, exactly.
1: that are least concerned, their numbers are high. Those are being...
0: Absolutely. So so when you're losing things like porcupines and samba, which are ubiquitous and relatively common under normal circumstances, you can imagine what it's like for a species like the sour, which was probably always extremely right. rare uh, and localized. And although they're not targeted, all the locals say their meat is not okay. great, so they're not particularly targeted. Anything that crosses those those ridge paths are are being snared. So it's it's a bycatch right. type situation, um, although, you know, historically they were targeted by some groups and the horns. Uh, people like to put their horns up in houses and things like that. But really, the main threat is this industrial scale snaring to uh, satisfy the restaurant meat uh, trade. Um, and to a some degree, the traditional medicine trade, but really the species we 're talking about are are meat quarry species rather than medicine. Uh, medicine is much more about pangolins mm-hmm. and tortoises mm-hmm. and things like that, which are caught in slightly different ways. Um, so yeah unfortunately it's it's almost a bycatch situation, um, but it's this industrial scale snaring in which unless it's controlled, you're not just going to lose Sally, you're going to lose every single animal that oh, right. on the ground. Oh, right. It sounds like it's starting forests. to
1: already happen. And so obviously then there has been a critical need has been identified. And it's been around probably since the cell law was first discovered and people like yourself. And then of course, other groups, world wildlife fund, global wildlife conservation and others have, have stepped into the plate. And so, I know that you have a couple different roles with your uh, tenure with working with these critically endangered mammals. So, if you could explain to the listeners um, what you do both at the GWC and then also, I know you're a member, if not the head, of the IUCN uh, SOLA working group. If you could just give the listeners a, a quick little uh, description of what you do as all of your multitude of roles since you're so passionate about these, these little hoofstock guys, these mysterious unicorns. And then we can talk, and then we'll talk a little bit more about what each different organization and or I'm interested to know too what the, um, the local governments are doing to help protect these animals.
0: Sure. Absolutely. Um, so there's a group called the, the IUCN Species Survival Commission. Asian wild cattle specialist group and that is a group that is the world experts on all of the Asian wild I cattle. I know I
1: like them on Facebook I follow them a lot I suggest all the listeners do that I will provide the link in our show notes.
0: It's a fantastic group underneath that there's a working group for Saola called the Saola working okay. group um, which um, which I was the chair of um, I'm not currently um, it's a revolving chair currently uh, uh, the chair of the Cattle specialist group chairs the, the working group, um, and so that is a group of experts. It's about thirty people at the moment um, that uh, are there as individuals. They don't represent their organisations. They represent right. individual it's like an expertise independent on the sour. council. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that uh started off as very much an advisory group looking, trying to understand the distribution, the threats, putting together action plans for both Vietnam and Laos. Um, and that's been coordinated um, by someone called Bill Robichaud. Um, ever since it, it uh, started. This is the the guy that is the face of sour conservation. He's been working on it ever since the discovery. Uh he was uh got to know Martha, which was the sour that lasted the longest in captivity, and he studied Martha um in Laos for a couple of months before unfortunately uh she passed away. Um and so Bill is the person that coordinates this group on the ground and, and really brings together the experts. Um, around the various different issues that are faced by saola. So, underneath that group, um, we have uh, little task forces that are working on different issues. Uh, one is about how do we detect and find saola. Right. <laughs> um, another one is how would we catch and move saola to a breeding center and establishing a breeding center. Another one is how do we get political support for saola conservation. Um, another group is looking at how do we encourage the next generation of saola conservation leaders from within Vietnam and Laos to emerge and, and blossom. So that working group is is a group of experts that are are trying to put together the best plan for saving the saola and and understanding the saola ecology. Um, and so, and, which
1: in which working group are you participating in currently?
0: So I'm i mean, which
1: a, small which section.
0: So I'm on the steering committee of that whole group. um, Oh, okay. That's a pretty big part. (laughs) Yeah. and, And I'm involved in, in a couple of the working, the task forces underneath that. Um, but my main role is, is helping kind of organize the group and, and, uh, work on the fundraising and awareness raising, um, so that we can bring in the international support to the work, um, because most of the people in the Saola working group are based, well, not most, but a big chunk of them are based in Vietnam and Laos doing mm-hmm. the work on the ground. Sure. Uh, we have a lot of international expertise from the zoo community and, and uh, NGOs that understand various parts of what would be needed for sour conservation. Um, uh, and because I'm based in the U.S. but know Vietnam and Laos very well, it's it's a, a, a useful role to me to play is is helping push with their fundraising and awareness and bringing in expertise when needed and things like that. But really, it's a collection. It's a collective, rather. We don't work as individuals. We don't work as individual um, task teams. It, it's it's a fantastic group of people that only have one mission, and that's to figure out how to save Salah and to make it happen. And what's happened in the last three to four years is we've really shifted from being a group of experts to being an implementation. But how do we how do we turn this into action on the ground? Um, so we're working with the, all the local conservation groups in Vietnam and Laos within Sala Range um, and advising them and what they need to do. Um, we're going in and doing certain things that need to be done. Uh, in terms of research and surveys and things like that but really working with these groups to try and protect um, the sites where salar are found um, and advising the government on um, what actions need to be taken and you know we're we're working on establishing a, an mou with the vietnamese government and the lao government to, to implement programs of conservation work for this species so it's a uh, it's turned into a whole conservation program, um, and it's very multifaceted, with with individuals, with with organisations on the ground in Vietnam and Laos, with the governments, with the international zoo community, and the international conservation community, all yes, pulling it... in the same direction. Um, so it's it's complicated, but it's um, it's energising, and, and we can certainly see progress happening day by day now.
1: Oh, that's amazing! Well, and now, Dr. Long, correct me if I'm wrong, but With the IUCN working groups, species working groups, this is all volunteer, correct? It is. Yes. Did you hear that, listeners? Let me repeat that one more time. The last five minutes he was talking, or more, about all the amazing work that, as well as 30 other individuals that are scientists, zoo specialists, conservation specialists, government specialists, they are doing this independent from whatever they're doing job is, which probably isn't a highly paying job, just because in general, conservation isn't, you're not going to become a millionaire doing that. So independent of their normal job, which they're probably spread thin and working their behinds off to begin with, these working groups for the IUCN is all volunteer. So my hat goes off to you and all you listeners out there, uh, please pass this message along. Let people know about the great work that IUCN is doing in general, but especially these working groups, which are these scientists and specialists that are volunteering a lot of time and a lot of energy and are, like Dr. Long said, making not only discussing things, but actually implementing and making real action happen to help save the species or in Dr. Long's case, it's the Sala. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I get goosebumps hearing about all that work because. I know enough about the industry to know how much you do for your normal job. Then to add that on top of it, it's just um, you're you're a wildlife hero in my eyes, and hopefully in all the listeners.
0: Thank you. And that's what we've actually realized in the last couple of years is that we can't save the saola as volunteers. Mm-hmm. So we've actually been doing a lot of fundraising and outreach to ensure that there is a core group of people who are actually paid to establish and run this conservation program. Um, so we we are shifting over to a, a mechanism where there will be a team in Vietnam and Laos full-time mm-hmm. um, running the conservation program. Awesome. Um, but that still requires all of us volunteers to find that sure. money to hire. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right. It just doesn't happen overnight. And then now who – what is the umbrella group that will be – uh, sponsoring that or is that under is that under global wildlife conservation or is it a different group or is it completely independent an independent new group that'll be working towards uh on the ground species conservation and rescuing these SOLA?
0: So we will work through local organizations okay. um, so the coordination uh, will be done through IUCN offices in the region and then we work with both local NGOs and international NGOs um, conservation groups in Vietnam and Laos. So anyone that's um, hired or or grants are made will go through legal entities okay. in the country. Um, the bank account for the Saola working group sits at Global Wildlife Conservation. So we are their fiscal mm-hmm. sponsor. We don't run right. the group. Um, we just are their bank account and we do that um, Balancer, for free yeah. to uh, enable the Saola working group to be able to, have a bank account. Um, and so we, um, we support them in that way. Um, but it's, it's run, uh, by, uh, the steering committee and the coordinator, Bill Rebishow um, and all the decisions are made, um, by the group as a whole. Independently.
1: Um, hmm And then now, so switching gears a little bit, uh, moving to your work at the D- GWC, what are they doing for saola conservation or what programs are you overseeing there
0: sure well, we do a lot of support primarily to the saola working group itself okay. um so my time um is i guess is covered i mean we all work more than 100 percent um <laughs> more. But, uh, <laughs> know, two, my time three. is covered to help um Uh, We obviously provide the the fiscal sponsorship uh, at no charge, um, and we also cover all of their communications needs. Oh, okay, um, that's a big one. Free of charge. Mm -hmm. So uh, our main role is actually supporting the SOWLA Working Group itself. Um, We also provide funds to the SOWLA Working Group to be able to to do some of the work, um, along with many, many other supporters of the group. Um, and then GWC itself has a couple of projects uh, in Vietnam and Laos where we're supporting um, more of the site based protection side of things um, and the research side of things um, uh, around snare removals and, and trying to, to address the, the threat of, of hunting. So we have you know, working through local partners um, are in Vietnam and Laos. Um, supporting the conservation of those, especially uh, our biggest project is in Pumac National Park, where we're working with Fauna and Flora International and uh, Ving University and Save Vietnam's Wildlife to try and come up with a demonstration site on how we can uh, prevent wildlife crime from occurring in the park. Um, so that's a, an ongoing project that we have there um, to try and prove that these parks can be snare free. Um, it's going to be a long term engagement. Um, is even if we get successful sour conservation going we're going to require reintroduction sites that are free of snaring so although this is not hundred percent sour project it's it's about pumat mm-hmm. and the, all the species within pumat but sour is one of them we want to have a demonstration site with no snares in in the next 10 years so if we have a successful conservation breeding program for saola, we have somewhere to put them back so we need to start now because it's it's going to take sure. a decade to get that working um we can't we can't wait for 10 years time and then suddenly start thinking about making sure there's there's no snares in the animates.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, and well and that leads to another question as far as the range like you said that uh they live in is it's big but it's fragmented. And so is it private land? Is it federal land? Are they in parks or is it all different throughout their range?
0: Um the vast majority of the fragmented populations are in parks. Um, okay. Both Vietnam and Laos have been fantastic at setting up parks wherever Saola oh, are found. Um, okay. Um, so the protection of the forest isn't necessarily a problem.
1: Okay. Um,
0: there are still fewer little sites. There's one in Laos that we're working on at the moment. We're trying to establish a park around one of the, the small populations. Um, and there's probably one or two small populations still in Uh, protection forest or or x logging concessions which are not really being logged etc but the vast majority of them are in are in parks um so that uh, provides them some level of protection
1: right but the poachers are the poachers are still going in and putting snares yes illegally i would assume yes Yes. So herbs.
0: habitat loss is not a problem. Uh, there's more than enough habitat. Wow. That's, See, that's not such necessarily a, a problem.
1: It's such a unique problem because usually it's the other way around. It's more either habitat loss or uh human species conflict. And
0: yeah, in in Southeast Asia, things are slightly different because the, the poaching pressure is so high. Okay. Um, even though there's been historical, uh, historically very large deforestation mm-hmm. rates, um, the current issue is primarily hunting across southeast asia um so yeah habitat is not a problem for Saula. um yeah we're losing beds and there's roads going through beds and there's hydropower dams being built yes it's been it's been eaten away from the edges but um it's not the main problem by a long shot um it's poaching which is the problem And, and yes the park's have done a good job of stopping deforestation um but they have not been effective at preventing poaching yet
1: and so is that potentially an, uh besides of course getting the locals and the communities around uh more potentially more active but does th- it also a need for more rangers in the area
0: well yes and no uh vietnam actually has a very good ranger system and probably has enough rangers um they do not focus on patrolling for snaring um the rangers in vietnam Ah. are much more focused on illegal logging um so even though they possibly have enough rangers you can always do with more rangers um sure but that's not an issue of money. focused on yeah. the the right issues around sour conservation lao is different uh lao does not have enough rangers um and so we really could do with with a, a significant increase in the ranger force um in lao and, and again not just more rangers but but better trained better targeted better managed rangers of course,
1: yes. And now I know historically uh this uh critter has been caught on camera traps and there's so there's pictures of it, it um walking or going through the forest. Are there still camera traps being set or have we seen one recently or is that really not the best way to approach learning about this animal at this point in time?
0: Um so The first camera trap picture of a Asala was in 1998 um, and there was a slew around Mm -hmm. 98, 99. um, And we, there was a few pictures, but then there was a very long break before we got another picture. The last picture was we got was in Mm -hmm. 2013. Um, And interestingly with that 2013 and the, the, the initial pictures we got one set of images and then we never caught them again on cameras in the same location. Um so don't know what that means. Um, the sour could have Mm -hmm. been poached. (laughs) Um it could have it could have a very strange ecology that we don't know about and it never comes back to the same place again. We we really don't know. Um so for about 20 years we've been trying to get adequate camera trapping going, and to be perfectly honest, we've never managed to do it because we've never had the funds available to really blanket camera trap an area. We've done lots of camera trapping studies with 20 or 30 camera traps. Um, and that just hasn't produced results. Um, what we've got going gotcha. now is is with this new big initiative that we're really pushing um, through the sour oh. working group is we actually have hundreds of camera traps out in a couple of locations um, and they've been out oh, cool. um, in some locations for a few months and others are being put out at the moment. So we're hoping that by having finally, after 20 years of trying significant numbers of camera traps in, in small locations where we believe sour still exist. Um, we're hoping that that will lead to detections uh, and not just individual detections, but repeat detections. So we can start understanding sure. where they're living and what kind of um, terrain they're in, which parts of the forest they're they're inhabiting, uh, which will help us not only get better at camera trapping, but will enable us to start targeting uh, other uh, conservation operations for them, uh, primarily capturing and putting them in a conservation breeding program.
1: Well, and that leads into the next uh, big question: is yeah, the future of cell uh, conservation <laughs> getting better? Uh, what what is the goal of the IUCN working group, or where, where do you see this going?
0: So, the work of the the, the the goal of the working group is is to save cell from extinction and, and have it. Uh, recovered across its range that's obviously a very long-term goal um, our immediate short-term goal is actually to catch as many sour as we can find and put them into a conservation breeding program okay. um, which might sound drastic to some listeners um, but it's a tried and tested uh, method for conservation um, if you look at things like the californian condor Black-footed ferret, uh, Arabian oryx, European bison, uh, pravalsky's horse, these have all been saved because the last animals have been in captivity and they've been bred under human care and they've eventually been released back into the wild. Um, because what I talked about earlier in terms of each population being too small, being impacted by alley effect, being in extinction vortices, we do not believe as the collective set of world experts that anywhere in the sour range, the sour can survive in the wild. Even though the sowler there, even if they're breeding right now, they will not be there in five to 10 years time. There's more deaths than there are births. Um, and so we don't see any other option than to bring as many as of them we can find into captivity and breed them there. Um, with the immediate aim of getting them reintroduced as soon as we've got a viable population in captivity and safe enough sites to reintroduce them to Uh, the end goal is not to have a breeding program the end goal is to get them in the wild across their range in safe places Um, but unfortunately the first step to do that now is captive breeding Um, so it's drastic but it really is the only option we've got Um, so we are now working with the international zoo community, which is where the expertise is in terms of capture, uh, care, breeding, etc., um, And the international zoo community has been fantastic um, at funding oh, yes. and providing mm-hmm. technical support for this program.
1: Yeah, I, I was blessed enough in my career to be able to work with the Arabian Oryx, which we haven't covered on the podcast yet, but that's up and coming. And their story is an amazing story. And I got to work with some at the zoo that were remnants of the breeding population that were then of course their cousins and whatnot had been re-released back in the wild and are, are doing good. Their numbers are uh, stable and slightly increasing. So, and on the podcast, we've definitely covered the California condor and the black-footed ferret. And once again, it is like you said, so much better to take action now before it's, it's too late. I mean, for instance, uh, the vaquita, most likely the, act, the action to capture them and breed them under human care is probably too late, and they will most likely vanish in the next five years, if not sooner, due to their, uh, due to the, their bycatch issue. So I applaud your work and all the experts. They know what they're doing. This has been a tried and true proven method as uh, as a last resort, especially for these fragmented and over po- poached, like you said, what? How did you describe it? A uh, industrial snaring? Oh my! Oh my word! That's yes. And they, they, it doesn't matter how much governments or scientists throw their hearts and their hands into an action; if they, they can't compete with that, you you have to remove the animal from that danger and get the numbers up so they could actually be more sustainable in the future. And then, of course, work towards implementing laws and more action in order to try to stop this. And hopefully, you know, my goal of being an optimist, or my hope is being an optimist is in the next five, ten, fifteen, twenty 10, 15, 20 years that perhaps some of this goofy desire for wildlife meat and or wildlife medicinal, non-scientifically proven demand will decrease. And I don't know how that's going to happen, but hopefully with the next younger generation that aren't as tired as us <laughs> or even us can get these, can get, can get the p- people educated in knowing that wildlife, especially endangered wildlife is not what you should be eating or taking as a medicine.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the, the Saula really is in the last second on that proverbial clock. Um, and this is the last chance for the Saula. Um, we we have to find and catch them in the next few years. Um, we really have no choice. Um, we know they're still there. We know they're out in the forest. We just need to be able to find mm-hmm. them and catch them. We probably are a few years too late. It would have been better be doing this five or ten years ago. Um, but that's mm-hmm. just the way it is. As part of this program for the sowler, we are also actually rolling in the large antlerd muntjac, um, which awesome. is the other... Uh, uh large um mammal that was discovered in 1997 in the anamites um they're critically endangered and are a few years behind sauler we we still know three or four locations where there's there's viable populations probably although viable we can never really define that um so as part of this program we're also going to be capturing some large island muntjac um when we know we know how to find them and we know there's enough animals in the wild that we won't be hurting those wild populations by taking some out. So sure. the Sour, even though the saula is bycatch from the the hunting point of view, large island munjak is kind of bycatch from our saula project that will actually establish a conservation sure. breeding program for them at the same time. Um, so we're getting right. a, a I mean, twofer out of this one as well.
1: A twofer, yeah, yes, a twofer hoofstock, a critically endangered hoofstock. I love it. And now, so what is your answer to people that maybe say, "Oh." The money that's going to go into this, you know, saving this in, uh, endangered species or conserving it, is a waste of time, or a waste of money. I suppose.
0: Um, well, there's only certain things I can reply to that on air. Um,
1: I would just say, uh, besides wanting, besides wanting to punch them in the face, it, like I do.
0: Um, you know, I, I get it. I mean, triage is something we have to deal with with every single day. Um, to me, there's a few different answers. One is ethical um i don't sure. think it's human's place on this planet to overtake it at the expense of every other living thing on the planet and just from an ethical point of view if if we are causing that much harm it's our responsibility to clean it up um mm-hmm. so that's my own personal belief and, and why i'm in conservation um from a more kind of cultural point of view the sala is the flagship species of of the animai mountains um, and you know that would be a bit like China losing its pandas or the US losing its um, bald eagle. You know, if, if if we're willing to let the sour go from the animites, we're willing to let everything else go. Um, and so I see it as the um, you know the, the crack in the dam. Well, we need to stop the crack here um, before the whole dam collapses. Um, so. The sauler to me is just a, an emblem of the animites, which is some of the best rainforest and most incredible place I've ever been in the world. Uh, and I'm lucky enough to travel the world quite extensively. Um, and the sauler is such a beautiful species within that. Um, I, I fear the, the domino effect if, if we lose the sour. And
1: with that being said, too, um sometimes these efforts can be pretty bleak to save some of these critically endangered species or where poaching or trafficking is just horrific. Um, so what you've been doing this for 20 years, what keeps you motivated to keep fighting this good fight each day uh, with all your, you know, not only for this, uh, not only for the sale but for all the other species that you work on and for the people, what, what helps keep you motivated?
0: I would say two things. One is, the people that you work with, um, when you're surrounded by dedicated people, um, it's, you kind of self-motivate each other. Um, okay. I mean, the Salah mm-hmm. Working Group is is a great example of people pulling in the same direction. Um, I do a lot of work on, on Sumatran and Javan Rhinos as well. And, and, and the teams in Indonesia that I work with there are just up against such difficult odds, um, but they're happy and jovial and just fantastic to work with. Um, And so you kind of pull yourself along as a team and and buck each other up as you go. Um, The other thing that keeps me going is, as teams, you find solutions to problems. And I I started this conversation about it being kind of a detective work. Once you come up with solutions, you want to try them. Um, and if right. a solution doesn't work you try something else um, I've been mm-hmm. working in Vietnam for nearly 20 years as I said and you know when I first went there I was working on community-based conservation solutions to preventing poaching Uh I've worked on land tenure to community uh, to indigenous communities I've worked extensively with rangers on training and trying to get them better tactics and equipment um, I'm now. We we then worked with community snare removal teams. I'm now working with criminologists from Michigan State University to try and understand oh, how we can remove that, um poaching my... and wildlife crime from community uh awesome. perspectives.
1: That's my that Michigan State's my alma mater. So uh, I gotta right, give excellent. Some, um, some props.
0: So you know, even though something when you try one thing and you can see it has some impact, but it's not the full solution, mm-hmm. you have to find the next piece of the puzzle. Um, and, you know, if you take all of those things I just mentioned for trying to prevent poaching, if you did all of them in one place, it might work. Right. But what's clearly not working is doing one of them in a site. Um, gotcha. So how do we bring all of that together? Um, and to do that, you're going to have to work with numerous different partners because no one organization has all the skill sets that required all the funding that's required. So how do you pull everything together? And that's what we're trying to do in, in Pumat with this partnership I talked about is finding a, collaborative set of solutions to the problem Mm -hmm. um again we might not have all the answers yet but let's get to a place where at least trying everything in the same place at the right scale that's required because we might have all the answers so to me it's that detective work and and trying and yes you might fail but then you just push a little bit harder and or from a slightly different direction and it's that kind of figuring out the puzzle is can be depressing, but it can also be really rewarding when when you see the next piece of the puzzle fall
1: into sure. place. Sure. Or if you're having a bad day and then you talk to one of your collaborators or team members and they and they pump you back up. So, yeah, yep, exactly. that's awesome. And so with that being said, how can the average person, our listeners or somebody who's not able to be in Vietnam or Laos, how can they get involved to help conserve the Saola or other endangered ungulates in the area that you had mentioned?
0: Well I think one of the the issues we face with Soula is that no one knows about it. Um Correct. and no one knows how to pronounce it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I knew I liked you. Good for you. <laughs> Thank you.
0: Um so uh. I think just spreading the word that there's these amazing creatures out there that no one's heard of, let tell people that they exist. Like spread the word. Right. You, you've got I have no think idea I'm just gonna... what telling one person will do. I mean, if BBC Wildlife hadn't published that article in in 1992 i wouldn't be here um, sure you'd
1: be like a, a banker somewhere or something well right?
0: hopefully i'd still be in conservation somewhere but i <laughs> probably wouldn't be here talking about Sala. Um, yeah so you know you, you you've got to tell people about them and and uh, get people to go on the the websites uh, and and find these things out the salad working group has a website full of information it's savesowler.org um so tell people um also explain to people about the threats of of eating wildlife and and selling wildlife i mean the the ultimate driver of of so many extinctions in in southeast asia at least and all over the world but especially southeast asia is is the wildlife trade and think about what you're doing just the things you say about uh, you know posting pictures of on facebook of people eating wildlife or Buying the wrong fish from the fish store. I mean, make sure it's coming from a sustainable captive bred place rather than if it's coming from the wild, make sure it's from a sustainably harvested, um, place. What you, how you buy your pets is critically important to driving or not driving the illegal trade in pets around the world. Mm -hmm. So just think about how you, um, think about your consumption around species and tell more and more people about it. So they think about it before they're purchasing or before they're Talking about things, or if they're going on holiday to Southeast Asia, that they don't go to places that are selling bear bile or eating weird wildlife and thinking it's cool and posting it on social media. So, um, I think there's a lot people can do. Yeah, I um, think that, just about the general issue. Right.
1: I really, I really think that people in general can be species, endangered species ambassadors just through promoting. Education of these species and what to do and what not to do. You don't have to be a director of conservation, although that helps <laughs> you get more done that way. Um, you don't have to be a, a person that hosts a podcast. You don't have to be a PhD in wildlife science. You just have to share information and the correct information and be passionate and get people. I, I, with hoofstock, I know there's not a, always as seen as as grandiose or perhaps as important as some of the other. Um, of course I, I love, you know, rhinos, but rhinos get the megafauna, the elephants, the rhinos, the lions, tigers, and everything needs our help in this day and age. Uh, but definitely spreading the information of these lesser known animals. And we can just call it the mysterious Asian unicorn. (laughs) Then that way I don't have to say it. (laughs) Although I think I've got it now. It's Saula. That's right. Solid. Okay. I, I'll just have to, I think if I write it up with a different, uh, way to pronounce it, uh, I won't, I won't fall into my Latin style of pronunciation or my romantic language pronunciation. Um, so yeah, so now once again, can you go over some of the websites or links or Facebook groups for our listeners? And we'll post into our show notes as well, but in case some people don't always go to the show notes, show notes just so they have it logged into their brain.
0: Sure, absolutely. So the SALA working group's website is savethesala.org, or uh, one word, um, and there you can read up about what we do and and how we're we're doing things and all the partners that are involved. Um, and critically, there's also a donate button on there. Um,
1: <laughs> ah, there it is. Yes, everybody, listen. He's being he's being shy and subtle about it. I'm not <laughs> donate. These people are doing really good things, and they're gonna you're gonna save this uh, mysterious Asian unicorn. From extinction, because they have a lot of models that we've learned from in the past of what works and what doesn't work. So even one dollar will help. And if you can't afford a dollar, then definitely recirculate this information. That's
0: great. Um, The Sounder Working Group also has a a Facebook page, so so please um, get on there. We also send out a, a regular newsletter, so sign up to the newsletter, and it'll come straight into your inbox um if you want to know more about the specific um Salah work of of global wildlife conservation then please go to our website at globalwildlife.org um there you can find out uh uh more about the saola working group as as well as the gwc projects in in vietnam and, and laos um and uh if you are on instagram or twitter um the saola working group does not have those um but i do and i um post regularly about uh, work in Southeast Asia and and the work of the group. So um, follow me at at Barney underscore Long on on any of those uh, outlets.
1: Wonderful. Well, Dr. Long, I thank you so much for talking to me openly and honestly, honestly, and of course, passionately about the Sola, And hopefully our listeners are as excited about this um, little unicorn in Asia, as I know that I am. And we, we need to help save this guy. Like you said, it's an ambassador species for the region and it stands not only a lot for the local people, but just for in general, uh, if we can't do this, you know, sheesh, what can we do? And saving them will also, like you said, open doors for many other species that are in their same habitat. And now my last question for you is, uh, I was wondering if you had, any advice for students or people that are interested in careers in animal conservation?
0: Yes, absolutely. I mean, to me, the most important thing you can do um, if you're interested in it is get out there and get your boots dirty. Um, it's very easy to to send off emails left, right, and center asking for, for work experience, but there's nothing that replaces on the ground experience. Um, I generally, Mm -hmm. when I'm hiring people, I'm not looking at how many degrees you've got. I'm looking at your references from people who have worked with you in the field. Can you work with politicians? Can you work with local communities? Can you work with scientists? Can you work with communicators? Um, are you a good fundraiser? These are the skills that you need. Um, not so much the scientific skills. Um, so I would focus on. Figuring out as broad a set of experiences as you can, and that's generally in the field, not in an office. Um, learn mm-hmm. different languages, different, different cultures, travel around the world to as many different projects as you can get your foot in. That really is the best experience, not just for um, a conservation career, but also for life. So uh, enjoy it. It's it's about sure. having, experiencing this amazing world and, and the people and cultures around the world as well as the wildlife. So dive in headfirst and don't give up because so many people do and and those that make it are those that don't give up and are the most passionate.
1: Right absolutely and now how would you say of course there's certain websites like aza.org that list jobs and they have a lot of internships for maybe the younger person just trying to get their foot in the door um, and that's more in a zoological setting but how do you recommend like if somebody wanted to work with us they heard this our interview and they're moved and they you know just turned 19 maybe or they maybe just graduated with their undergraduate degree is it best to perhaps email a researcher working with a species or do groups like gwc do they do internships or anything like that
0: you know it's very difficult um to do internships and things in the field because of language barriers and visas and all of these kind of things. So it is difficult. And I fully understand how difficult it is. Um, I did nine months of volunteering, uh, in Indonesia, uh, as you know, all through my undergrad degrees, I went to Indonesia every single summer, um, as a volunteer, spent all my student loans on plane tickets and things Mm -hmm. like that. So that is,
1: that's a good option though. Um, I studied abroad as well. So,
0: yeah, it's difficult, and and I I understand it's difficult. Um, how you get in the door? Um, persistence. Yeah, you All, just keep knocking. Uh, yeah, you just the, keep knocking. The, when when I got accepted as a volunteer, I asked why they picked me over anybody else, um, and the response was, "You're the only one that didn't give up." Ah. Um And the people that are working with me who approached me as students are people that never gave up, and. Eventually got out to the field and proved themselves when they were there. Um, so it really is about persistence. And you can send these day and age, you can send a thousand emails a day to people all over the world at various conservation projects. They're all receiving lots of emails with similar requests. Sure. Um, what do you have that those other hundred people a day are not and don't have? Um, it's passion, persistence, um, willingness to go out um, and do things, um, whereas. Roadblocks are things to be broken down, not things to give up because of.
1: Ah, uh, I love it, Dr. Long. You're a very wise soul, so
0: <laughs> not sure about that. <laughs> uh,
1: but no, but and definitely traveling too. I, I did a lot of traveling after my undergraduate degrees um to Central, South America, Africa, and it definitely was very, very eye-opening to obviously a lot of wildlife and crises that were happening over there but also to, to cultural and it gave me a lot more sensitivity and I think compassion into the complexity or like you said, detective skills or puzzle pieces that it's not a, it's not a one stop shop solution. And so therefore uh, for me, it just made me want to learn more and how to methodically put all the pieces together or start to, or what, or what, and also to, what am I good at? What can I do? What, what part, Where, what would I fit into? Not everybody can be a forensic scientist. Not everybody can be a politician, but what can you, I can have my one part that I specialize in, but then work on all the other ones, work on my other. I think
0: that's a really, really important point. I mean, I went out to the rainforest wanting to be an ecologist, radio tracking animals and things like that. I very quickly realized that although I love being in the rainforest, I was not the best scientist out there. I didn't want to spend my whole life working on data and numbers. I was much better with people and Connecting um, collaborations and that kind of thing. So absolutely don't don't go out there also too preconceived as to what you want to do because you don't know until you get out there whether you'll enjoy the conditions, whether you'll be able to learn languages, whether you're great at fundraising or communications or science or whatever. So yeah, get out there, try different things. Don't be afraid to fail and don't be afraid to change direction.
1: Exactly. I always say, you know, keep knocking on the door, but make sure you're knocking on multiple doors.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well,
1: Dr. Long, once again, thank you for your time and getting us all excited about Sala, getting us all excited about Sala Conservation. And I, you know, if you are ever hiring somebody that fits a lot of pieces of the puzzle, you know where to find me. We're now Facebook friends, so keep me in mind. (laughs) Unfortunately, with my two.
0: Oh, I can't stop I know, this podcast. I know, though. right?
1: <laughs> um, but I, I, unfortunately because of my two little ones, my four year old and two year old, I, I can't, I can't have boots on the ground at this point in time, but of course there is in the future. Um, that'll be my retirement. It'll definitely be boots on the ground somewhere doing something in the jungles, um, uh, and saving more animals. That's for sure. So well, thank you so much. And we'll put all your notes and websites up on our show notes for our listeners and everybody if you made it through this whole interview which hopefully you did our your number one job today is to tell somebody or share something on social media about the sala and its conservation crisis so please share and dr long we'll stay in touch and i really appreciate your time today thank you
0: oh thank you so much for having me it's been an absolute pleasure